everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. And today I have with me again my lovely and charming, beautiful business partner and significant other, Deborah Mikus. Hello. And today we'll be interviewing Rob Antonitis from the Civil War Cider Company. How are you doing today, Rob? Doing very well, Justin. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into brewing ciders and a little bit about your story from when I knew you at Dickinson College when we were awesome on the soccer field together, just so the audience knows. And um, from that, from then, and how you got into the cider business, especially in a state like Pennsylvania that had some hard um, alcohol laws. Wow. So you want my life story uh, <laughs> in brief. Just in 45 minutes. <laughs> and leave room for lots of questions. <laughs> um, wow. It seems harder than the Monday motivational uh, that you did there. Uh, let me see if I can put it into words here really quick. Um, I went to college undergrad with you and uh, majored in political science and philosophy Uh, graduated, went to law school, and was on my way to becoming a lawyer, and uh, realized that wasn't the direction I wanted to go. So I dropped out. I moved abroad and lived abroad for two years, uh, based mostly out of Madrid, Spain, but traveled around quite a bit and stayed in a few different places. Uh, At that time, I had gotten a taste of some uh, great ciders from northern Spain, uh, Galicia, La Coruña, and uh, really enjoyed them uh, as much as I was enjoying great red wines and white wines from Spain and southern France, but uh, realized that when I was back home, my father and my grandfather were making hard cider very similar to these Spanish and southern French uh, ciders, and and, uh, we didn't think anything of, uh, of it other than to drink them at the hunting camp uh during deer season and so when i came back hold on so why were they making cider how did they come across it that's so interesting that that this started so they were already doing it but how did they know how to do it uh well my father learned it from his father-in-law my grandfather and my grandfather started doing it uh back in the late 50s when he first took over his father's uh, sawmill, and um, I believe they bought property that had uh, apple or apple trees on it, and nowadays they call it released apple trees when you find apple trees that are growing in a forest, and nobody's been taking care of them. If you cut the trees around it, if you prune the tree well, you can get edible apples again, and uh, so I believe that that was part of the beginning of it, although it's a little bit hazy when you're going back that far. Um, and so he started buying bourbon barrels and putting the apple juice directly in the bourbon barrels and putting it in his basement and letting them sit. His minimum was two years uh, to keep something firm, fermenting and then aging inside of the barrel. And at that point, he didn't filter it. He didn't process it. He didn't even drop in uh, tablets for preservation he just pulled it out put it in a jug and we took it up to the cabin to have a drink of uh, grandfather's special and just hard cider curious what so, something like that tastes like compared to like a refined cider that most of us have tasted what's the difference does it taste rough is it 
really strong or what's it taste like? Well, without mechanical filtering, you definitely get a, a thicker, a more viscous li- uh, liquid and uh, a, a thicker feel on the tongue when you're drinking that hard cider. And, but as far as clarity and taste, it is kind of similar to uh, some, uh, some ciders that are common that are barrel aged that people are making nowadays. Moncton Mills has one down in Maryland. Uh, I believe Supreme Court is making one down in Washington, D.C., and Ancho in Washington, D.C. is doing similar barrel-aged stuff. And these guys are putting stuff in barrels and heating it a, a little bit more than you typically would, but they're, they're, doing, they're optimizing the process to create an end product that was similar to two years of aging in a barrel that my grandfather used to do. So you have a woodiness, you have charcoal filtration, uh, you have a lot of clarity in the final product, and, and um, you know my grandfather was doing it the maybe the easiest way, but the longest way. And uh, these guys have figured out a, a way to achieve a similar product in a shorter period of time. Right, makes sense. You you know t- who has the time, and you know plus the expense of letting it age for that long. I mean that's a big investment to do it that way. So you can see how the shortcut got created. Absolutely. Okay, so you so learned how from, from your family. And sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was like, wait, how did they know how to do it? But anyway, so go on. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, they, when I got back from Spain, uh, I, again, worked for some attorneys and uh, worked in the corporate world, but at the same time was uh, looking around for something to get out of that world because I realized that I wanted to uh, work with my hands. I appreciated my first job more than ever now that it wasn't there anymore. The sawmill had closed down. We had big box stores move in right next to where the family business had been for five generations. And so they closed it down. They had a bunch of big empty buildings. And um, my father and I thought about what could we do with these buildings? And uh, at the same time, we're going down into dingy old 200 year old basements uh, with our heads crouched over to pull hard cider out of uh, barrels and thought, why don't we put our barrels (laughs) in these sawmill buildings where we have easy access to them and uh, specifically the dry kiln buildings, which were insulated very, very well so that you could heat up the wood and uh, uh, speed up the process for drying the wood so you could sell it. were very well insulated that we could keep them the exact temperature that we wanted to all of the time. So then began the process of creating a hard cider company where we bought our own apple press, pressed our own juice and filled up only Jack Daniels whiskey barrels uh, with 52 to 57 gallons of apple juice and let it ferment for a minimum of one year up to three years. And that was back in 2009. And so this is a business you started with your father. So I started that business with my father. Okay. (laughs) There's more. (laughs) And then, yeah, and then we did business together for about five years and things went well. You know, the story, how, how it goes when you, um, when you hit a home run, you're growing at 300% annually and 500% annually. 
and uh, you, you can't you can't produce enough. You have not even close to enough capacity for all the demand in a market that has been on apps. So we grew and grew. And then our third location was in a place in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and where I'm currently at. And when we opened that uh, store, we were about three blocks from Bucknell University and the young professors and the students and the foodies that come with that demographic of a Division One college uh, 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 group of people really um, patronized us and boosted us. And in one year at that location, that new location, we did more business than we did at our other two locations combined. Wow. And we realized that we would not be able to keep up with the demand uh, at least for another year because our process for making hard cider required one year minimum storage in a barrel. So even if that day that we realized sales were going to be great, we put up enough to handle what was going to happen in a year, we wouldn't be ready for a year. And we certainly wouldn't be ready to uh, supply cider at our existing two locations. Right. So. My grand, my father decided that we needed to pull out and then try to rent it after a year. Um, and I didn't like that option because it was such a cash cow. And I figured we just needed to learn how to milk it. And <laughs> so I bought the building, uh, went into a partnership with the owner of the building, then bought it and went out to Colorado. My sister was out working with the guy from Funkworks Brewing. And uh, there were two new cideries out there, Compass Cider, uh, which is now out of business, and uh, Scrumpy, uh, which is downtown still, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, learned how to, these guys were making artisanal ciders, which is different than the barrel-fermented, barrel-aged ciders that my father and I were making. The artisanal ciders you can put in stainless steel. You can speed up the process of fermentation and you can quickly carbonate for per preservation and deliver via keg or bottle. So I learned that process. I came back, bought my first fermenters, and started right away. Our only holdup was uh, licensing with the state of Pennsylvania. Justin mentioned that earlier. Pennsylvania has a really tough time with the bureaucracy of, uh, of alcohol production and sales. And uh, it took about six months to get our permit to sell. And uh, But once that happened, uh, I think June of 2015, we sold our first bottle, and we've been going like gangbusters since. Well, that's amazing. So what did you do in the interim? Because you were saying even if you had recognized that problem, you still would be a year out. So, But it sounds like it still took you six months to get through just that one part of the process, not to mention the research and development of going to Colorado. So what did you do in that interim period of time to, what did you do for product? How did you keep going? Well, thank God. Thank God. Well, no, I was closed. So, oh, so you did have to close. Okay. Yeah, I was closed. Civil War Cider Company did not exist yet to be able to sell. Um, and Colonel Ricketts Hard Cider, I had to sell out of that business 
to start up civil war, to start up my business and because of a law in Pennsylvania against interlocking business when you're producing alcohol. So I sat on my butt, uh, figuratively speaking, and couldn't do anything for six months. However, I had purchased the building already. Um, and so thank God I was uh, renting apartments to college students upstairs. And uh, so I, I scraped by for six months. <laughs> so you had a little bit of revenue to like squeak you by in the meantime. But probably a, a stressful little... period, yeah. <laughs> yes. And preparing future customers by having college students live upstairs, patrons. <laughs> and so what did you do with the other two locations? Were they still up and operating, or you closed those down too while you were transitioning over to this new? Were you able to do the other two locations, or you had to close it all down and to get ready to start up again? Well, um, Here's a little tangent that we can go off on just really quickly. And it's something that I lecture uh, a lot of people about. Um, I was in a family business with my father and my father had been in a family for, for six years from my father and I, and my father had been in a family business that had gone for five generations through our family. And he had been in it for more than 30 years because um, he married into it. And um, something that uh, had happened already in the lumber business and something that ended up happening between my father and I was we had a huge disagreement about how to uh, continue with the cider company once we saw how successful the Lewisburg store was, uh, my current location, and what to do about it. And by the time we discovered the process of me selling my shares and starting my own company, things had gotten a bit sour and not just between my father, but between my whole family against me. And I had a very difficult time even having conversations with my family for maybe two months prior to the whole business deal going down for the next nine months after the business deal went down. Everybody from my grandfather down to my nieces and nephews thought that I had ripped a, another small business apart, a family business apart, and they were worried that I didn't stay the course and go for slower growth um, as the business progressed slowly. Right. So when I separated myself from the business and I took a buyout for my 49% of the company that my dad and I had, um, I accepted a check and then was not privy to anything that they had going going forward for almost nine months. Now, what happened after about six months when I got my full license to sell in Pennsylvania, they have reciprocity. And if you're an alcohol producer, you can buy other people's alcohol. I started sending my father $500,000 checks to buy his hard cider to sell at my location. Right. And I became his number one customer. And uh, I didn't buy back his love, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it certainly helped that I became his number one customer within about seven months of uh, him thinking that I had uh, completely thrown family uh, to the curbside and went on my own journey. So, well, so that's kind of in a whole interesting dynamic. I mean, one family, right? Like that's kind of tricky being in business with them because it's not just business. It also is family. And so, you know, the stakes are a lot of times much higher. And uh, so that's really interesting. But I mean, was the ultimate issue that you saw 
you saw a different path, maybe even a bigger path. And they were like, they saw their path and they didn't want to transition with you and you didn't want to stay their course. And so you were like, the logical thing is to, you know, you guys do your path, I'll do my path and we'll try and figure this out. I mean, is that ultimately kind of the summary? Exactly. I had a plan to continue growing and for this to be a full-time job for uh, myself and my father and for it to be an investment opportunity for other uh, members of the community or my family and for uh, us to employ people and grow to different locations where the brand could be recognizable outside of the small town where my father and I originally launched that cider company. Right. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you were in a position where you couldn't grow because you couldn't produce based on how long it had to be in the barrels. And so you were like, I have to find a different process. So to you, it was just a solution to how to have product so you could grow. It's, you know, at least that's what I'm hearing. And it seems very logical. So today, where does that sit? So do you still purchase product from them? Are they back involved with your new production processes or how you know, how do you guys work going now? How is that working now? No, I don't buy stuff off of him. His prices are too darn high. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I tell him. Um, I actually, I have not in probably a couple years uh, because he is a very boutique. He can command a pretty high dollar for a 750 milliliter uh, bottle of his stuff and uh, that is not our format we have uh, ciders on tap and go through hundreds of gallons of cider in a month and he only needs to sell a hundred gallons of cider in a month and he's good to go right so yeah it's it's almost like apples and oranges at this point right Although really it's apples and apples, but <laughs> it's just how you, you, it. whether it's a barrel or a stainless steel keg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're now trotting down the road. You've got your way to produce. And so, are, so you're in the facility or the building that you purchased. And so what's happening now? Like, what is your, like, what does that facility look like? You do you do your production there? How are sales? Is it people come in and purchase it like a liquor store? Is it more like a cafe or what does that look like? For the nine months that we ran this location uh, together, my father and I, I was the on-site manager for this particular location. Um, and while I had a number of friends that went to Bucknell University 15 years prior when uh, I was in college and I had spent some time here, I was not super familiar with the school or the caliber of student um, or the town other than to know that it was a quaint and, uh, and, and beautiful little town. Um, as we ran the business for those nine months, I got to meet some amazing people and they worked here part-time and they were, the heads of the Japanese department at Bucknell, or they were um, uh, working for uh, the university in some other capacity. And we realized that they were such a great resource for how we wanted to move forward that being a part-time bartender was not everything that uh, was not utilizing all their talents. So when we started out, um, 
you know, we, we switched to a quicker fermentation and we had uh, uh, decent sales and, um, and we were meeting uh, all of our monetary requirements. We also started talking with the Small Business Development Center in our town and with uh, these employees of ours who wanted to be even more involved and more invested in what we were doing. And we created an employee stock ownership program, an ESOP. And these folks uh, came on board. I believe we had five after our first year that came on board and participated in the management and direction of the company. And so we went from what we had been prior as just a bottle house, like you were describing, to becoming a bar slash living room. We had couches uh, and booths available in the front, but we built a, uh, an L-shaped bar in the back and got some great seats and uh, built a tap out of a uh, big piece of walnut that we found on the edge of the Susquehanna River. And we turned it into a meeting house or a, um, or uh, the joke always was, it was the living room, uh, Rob's <laughs> living room. And uh, so we had a lot of folks come in and spend time in our place, not just pick up their alcohol at our place. Right. It's like a clubhouse when you're a kid, but for big kids <laughs> where they can have their, their desired beverage. I know. And then instead of an apple juice box, they get the apple cider with alcohol. <laughs> I like it. Exactly. And I was always the guy with the clubhouse when I was a kid. Our our parents and grandparents owned a sawmill. And, man, we could find wood anywhere we wanted. We could build a treehouse. <laughs> we could build a clubhouse. We were always the guys building clubhouses. It's perfect, <laughs> then, that you have this clubhouse now. It's so great. The living room slash clubhouse. Super fun. Absolutely. So... Do you guys um, bottle and then distribute now as well as the only place people can get your products is actually at the, the meeting house or at the Civil War um, Cider Company location? We're currently on tap at Sealands Grove Brew Pub, at the Isle of Q Brew Pub, Rusty Rail Brew Pub, and the Moon and Raven Public House up in Williamsport. PA. So we don't distribute outside of 40 minutes because I self-distribute and I've got to throw them all in my, in my pickup truck. But um, we're in anywhere from five to eight places at all times. Well, that's amazing. So, I mean, do you guys, is it a goal to distribute farther or pick up business farther or just sort of let it grow organically and see what happens? Justin, you, you know how it is. You've been in this business for a while and you can read the consulting reports and you can look at everybody else's business models and you can analyze the market and think that you have a plan and that you have the right way forward. <laughs> and, and you can follow plans that have been successful for other folks and it's not the right one for you. Yeah. When I opened this place and I sat down with these very experienced people in business from Bucknell. Um, you know, we had their, their digital media and design guy in here. We had their head of their uh, economics department that we were consulting with. And they all laid out plans. And I mean, Excel spreadsheets, uh, presentations. We were doing board meetings. Uh, you know, the, the girl from Japan 
um, was out of town and we'd, we'd conference her in and get everybody's opinion and, and really weigh in on some heady conversations about the future of this business because it it seemed like the sky was the limit and that you know this thing was going to blow up like a bomb and everybody's uh best guess was to go with distribution on a wide market bottling canning canning and wholesale distribution and um we we weren't we weren't right about that in 2014, the liquid alcohol beverage market went from 0.5% cider to 1.5% cider. And that seems like a very small percentage change for the total alcohol consumption in the United States. But the reality is only so much shelf space was going to be allotted to cider in all of these distribution places. And so we produced some 22 ounce bottles and got them out to places where we could sell them. And because we didn't also have a six figure marketing budget and we didn't also have a plan of attack to hit the entire chain of wholesale distributors, but just locations within an hour or two, we couldn't get shelf space to do what we wanted to do. So we had to go back to the drawing board and we looked at what the government of Pennsylvania was allowing our type of business to do. And one thing that seemed to be an untapped market at the time um, was to utilize these additional locations. We are given one manufacturing site, but we're allowed to have four more retail sites after that. So we decided to start pursuing that format because we liked our retail money anyway. The money that we made on keg distribution and bottle uh, distribution was about a third of what we were making on retail money anyway. So getting to the volume and then taking bets on wholesale was a very capital intensive process where we knew uh, with, with a slower return, where we knew with a retail format, we can go in capital intensive upfront, but start making uh, uh, revenues very quickly. And so we decided to pursue that route more. Uh, specifically, we started talking with coffee shops that were closing before five o'clock uh, we went down to Harrisburg and uh, Carlisle and Camp Hill, and then north up into Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and uh, found these places that had open space in the evenings that could recreate the format that we had. Rustic, a single tap, and a nice atmosphere for people to hang out and enjoy a meeting house style uh, of uh, evening. And um, we got pretty far in some negotiations, but ultimately uh, either somebody else local, they, they liked our idea so much they found an even more local partner <laughs> <laughs> or uh, they ended up not taking us up on the offer. Now, we, we are still in negotiations. We've got a local guy that we're working with right now and uh, one out of town that we still talk with also. Um, so the, the dream is still there to open that second location and third, fourth, and fifth. 
but we've got to find the right partner and we're getting better at learning how to talk to these people and evaluate the potential buyers and potential partners uh, better than we did when we first started doing it. And so um, on a, a, I'm sort of going on a tangent, but I've got to imagine that the cider business is picking up quite a bit because of all the gluten intolerance and beer and stuff like that. Is that something you guys are aware of? Just from a health standpoint, I've got to imagine more people are turning to ciders. Is that the reason for the growth or do you see anything that relates to that at all in your market? We have been going to the Pennsylvania Cider Festival since it was started three years ago. And when we go down there, we get to sit down with, I think the first year, 20 other cider makers. And then this past year, 36 other cider makers. They have a dinner the night before. And I'm usually the only person in the room that doesn't hate beer or have an intolerance for beer. A lot of people have gone to this market because of gluten intolerance or another one that we're seeing more is a rejection of the preservatives in highly uh, or, or, or less processed craft beers. So they're less mechanical processing, but then they're putting more preservative chemicals inside of the beer uh, for these nano breweries uh, to, to um, regional breweries. And some people are rejecting that. They're getting the red face. They're getting the reaction, the, you know, the bowel reaction, the stomach and gut reaction. And so they're coming towards cider because you can do it in, you can do it in a chemical-free format, which is what we do, and you can do it in a very low chemical format, which is what a lot of other folks are doing. And just curious, what's the shelf life on your cider? Well, I tell everybody three months to be safe, but uh, most of the stuff I drink is over a year old that I make. And it's totally fine. And it's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it's funny. It's like people don't really think about it, but, you know, beer and stuff has a shelf life and cider has a shelf life. A shelf life. And so it's a, I don't even know if I've ever noticed an expiration date on those products. I mean, do you guys, are you required to put a expiration date on your products? I know in food, we totally have to. No, you're not required to. And that's, that's so one of the few things that we can thank big beer for. They, they lobbied for years and years and years to not have to put expiration dates on their beer cans. And so now the ATF does not require it for alcohol but it but it's required for so many other things right that's so interesting well i guess that's a good one there's so much regulation i mean our regulations are just through the roof and um it's actually gotten to the point where a bunch of laws that have been passed have made it so a lot of commercial kitchens just can't even function because the capital investment they have to put into their facilities is just not within reach and so you know a lot of stuff is having to be outsourced from these kitchens and other kitchens are closing and so it's kind of an interesting thing so i guess you guys can be thankful for that because you know it's a. Uh... but you would think that a lot of, uh, anything that would grow most anything that would grow in your product would also be killed by the alcohol doesn't it i mean that seems logical to me but maybe not well um it depends because some some uh, well there's a couple things like is something going bad because it's acidifying is it turning into acid and therefore into a type of vinegar 
or is something going bad because it's getting more um, dangerous uh, uh, versions of uh, ethyl alcohol into it, Mm -hmm. which you find in distilling a lot more uh, with the heads and the tails of a run of of, uh, apple brandy that goes through a still uh, drinking those beginning parts has esters in them that uh, can can kill you pretty quickly or or cause severe uh, reactions. Um, or is it going bad because you have a mold of or or something growing on top of it? You know, there, there's a lot of versions of bad, and and in most cases you can't get bad without almost making the product unrecognizable. So. Uh, taking the taking the bottle of cider, heating it up over 100 degrees, and then keeping it at a temperature where fermentation can happen again, and then somehow uh, allowing a little bit more air in for that microorganism to to consume and uh, and go through another process. So it's yeah, it's it's hard to make it go bad uh, where it's a health problem. Um, but uh, certainly change within the bottle, which is desired in all of your red wines and, 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 uh, and even your uh, uh, barreled beers, a change within the bottle is a good thing. Bottle aging is a requirement. So um, you do want some change to happen. It's just, the question is, how far down that road do you want to go? Right. <laughs> Um, so on another topic, you briefly mentioned marketing. And so what do you guys do for your marketing? Um, I mean, you obviously are looking into different avenues to distributing your product and getting it to the consumer. So, I mean, one, what's your primary focus on getting your product to the consumer and how do you try to reach them? Is it, you know, through getting it into facilities and you're marketing to them and that's door to door or social media, obviously that's huge in today's world. Like what, what are the angles you guys are working? Um, I started out with a, what I thought it was a very solid business plan and I had already been in the market for five years and I had been in the market in the capacity of an owner So I thought I had it figured out and I thought I had a marketing and advertising budget that made sense. And then my license was held up for six months by the state. And I spent every extra dollar that I didn't have to invest into my capacity, you know, my production process or um, making the business launch all the insurances and other things and overhead and had zero dollars left for marketing and advertising when I started. So I became my own self-taught genius in Facebook marketing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the first year I was in business because I could not do, I could not do paid advertising. I just couldn't do it. Now it became a little bit of a pride thing after about the third year in business that we hadn't still dipped into Facebook market, paid Facebook marketing. And around here, the newspapers aren't, a, a, a thing that people typically read. It's a more transient population. People aren't receiving them uh, at their homes too much. So we, we hadn't been into any paid marketing by the third year. And in a conversation with our investors, our brain trust, we posed the question of, do we want to continue to exist and be able to say, we spend $0 on marketing and advertising. And, you know, with, with the knowledge that we were already getting our name out there quite well 
in some of the traditional media outlets like newspapers and radio because we were donating so much to nonprofits in the area for their big events. So we decided that we liked that. We like to be able to say that we didn't spend any money on marketing and advertising and that we were all word of mouth and we were all uh, and we got a lot of our community support from supporting nonprofits. So that's what we continue to do. Last year, we spent uh, 15 percent of our profit on uh, on donations to uh, uh, nonprofits in the area. And uh, those nonprofits uh, certainly benefit from the ciders that we give them or the space that we uh, allow them to reserve for free uh, to run their fundraisers. But also they support us by putting us on their media and they support us by talking about us when they're on the radio or inviting us along when they're on the radio. And, um, and uh, also the newspaper will show up from time to time to take a picture at our place. So, We've gone that format, and we're we're proud of it. Uh, I don't know what will happen when we move into a new market. Uh, if we might have to, uh, just to make sure we we hit with a with a bit of a thud, uh, or you know, make a splash when we move into the market, we we might have to pay for uh, marketing at that point. But as of now, we have never paid a dollar. Well, and I think, I mean, while you didn't do it intentionally, the end result is really great. I mean, in a world where so many companies are all about the give back and they align themselves with nonprofits and whatnot, I mean, yours kind of came about because you didn't have the funds to do it. But in in reality, you're supporting all of these nonprofits that are in your community and whatnot. It's a... And I think it's a pretty powerful statement to say 15% of your profits go to donations to your surrounding uh, nonprofits. I think that's a really great thing to be able to tote. And so, you know, it's one of those things It's you know, you do things based on what kind of gets thrust upon you as an entrepreneur. And, you know, sometimes it ends up being the best thing that could have happened. And so I think that sounds like a really one of those stories where it ends up being this great phenomena. Um, and plus to have other companies pushing you, I mean, that's great too. And other nonprofits. And I mean, it's just that many more people who are helping you cross promote and you're helping them generate funds and it's a win-win all the way around. That's a, a- Yeah, I agree. It's, um, we talk a lot about it and I've seen it a lot on this podcast is your greatest advantages are often the things that started off as disadvantages. And I, marketing and advertising and it's a funny thing people spend all this money and and call to actions and trying to get people to to buy their products i mean how many people watch all those super bowl ads and they love them but that doesn't mean they necessarily buy their products and they're spending like a million dollars a second on those those advertisements where organic word of mouth business and people that just like you organically. I mean, they're there because they want to be, they're not there because you sort of teased them with a, with an ad or a, a promotion on Facebook. Um, and in my own experience dealing with companies, I have to say that those Facebook ads are great for getting likes and getting people to click a website and promote a product, but often they don't lead to sales based on the numbers that they're getting. I think people either are loyal to your product, and even if you are spending advertising, it's often, you know, in other ways that are beneficial. Sponsoring events and nonprofits, I think, is a major benefit to anyone because people see you out there giving back. And in the world we live in today, people want businesses to give back. It's just, you know, part of being profitable means 
taking care of your community and, and not only your stockholders, but your stakeholders. And we're seeing a lot of that in growth. So I think that's awesome that you guys are doing it for sure. It's part of being uh, a local for um, location. People come into our place because they want to eat and drink uh, local stuff. They want to know where it came from. They want to know who's benefiting from it. You know, who's running the business? How are they doing their processes? But at the same time, if we're also helping them, you know, we, we might have a customer that we never knew went to the local YMCA, uh, but they're coming to our place all the time because they know that we're helping out the YMCA, you know, and um, it's, it's great. It's a symbiotic relationship. And, it, and I always wanted to be a place that did business the right way. We had a lot of these conversations when we first brought our um, five ESOP members into the boardroom and said, this is not going to be a lot of the d- discussions about how to make money. We already know how to do that. We already know how to run this bar too. We want to know how we can do it in the way that makes us all proud to do it. So we have sacrificed growth. Um, and we've sacrificed, uh, some, some bottom line numbers for, uh, revenue. Uh, but we are all happy with the way that we conduct business and, um, concentrating on using, uh, nonprofits to get our word out and, um, not spending money on and sending it to Mark Zuckerberg is, uh, is something that we, that uh, makes us feel good yeah. at the end of the day. Well, and I think I love hearing about that. And, you know, I really kind of want to dip in a little bit on this whole ESOP thing to, we haven't talked about that on this show yet, and it's an interesting model. And so you've mentioned that there's five of them. Is that because that's how many people are in your company? Or is that because it's only been extended to a certain number or you have to be with your company for X amount of time? Or how, how is there five? <laughs> We initially had it as if you worked for us, we extended it to you as an option. Um, and we also uh, initially allowed you to put any percentage of your paycheck into it with a, with, without an original uh, investment of you know, 250 or $500. We had to modify those things because we found that um, college students would uh, participate in it and th- then when after the graduation, they would um, want their investment back, which is totally fine. But it was a lot of paperwork for me to keep track of. <laughs> right, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it was great having their input, and it was a good dynamic group of people. But as far as me running a small business uh, at the time, it was, it was too much. So we put our baseline at you must purchase a share, and then you can add on percentage of your paycheck to become part of it. And we put it at a six-month minimum employment as well. So we do have college kids that qualify for that. In fact, we're, we're hiring just under 21 folks for the first time ever, so 20-year-olds. So we get them for two years as they go through Bucknell University. And, um, you know, we, we can get people like that. But for the most part, it's more of our community members who are freelance bartending or, you know, just uh, part-time bartending for us in the evenings that take advantage and become part of the program. So we had, we started with five as the original class, 
but we're at seven, uh, and then including me as eight investors in the business. And so with that being said, you know, you said they have to buy a percentage. So whenever like someone starts working for you today and in six months from now, do you then take a valuation of the company or how do you determine what that 1% costs? Sure. Um, you know, because that in of itself, in my, valuing a company in and of itself is a, quite an ordeal. And so how do you derive that number? Absolutely. Um, in my previous life, uh, this was what I did for lawyers. I, I didn't work for the injury lawyer. I worked for the corporate lawyer and created a lot of comp- uh, shelf companies and, and also helped create the corporate structures and helped uh, do valuations and set par values. So there is this one thing that you can do with subchapter S corporations, which is set a par value uh, at whatever you pick, and that can be your minimum stock. And so that's what we did. Uh, I just, uh, to make it easy, uh, we set our minimum par value, which, you know, we can say, for instance, is a thousand bucks. And for somebody to get uh, involved in our company, they would have to originally buy that uh, share of $1,000. And then as valuation changes throughout the year for the company, up or down, uh, their investment on paper will reflect that amount. When they, when they buy out, uh, because we are a closed corporation and we have written into our bylaws first right of refusal, um, I can then have 30 days to buy their shares back to them, which is what we always do. That way we can offer the, uh, the next piece out to somebody else that meets the qualifications and we don't have to worry about them trying to sell it on the open market to another person, person, which they legally could do if after the 30 days I didn't purchase it back. Right. So employee stock ownership programs um, can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. But with a little bit of reading, and there are plenty of examples on the Internet of super successful companies that have done this, uh, one in Pennsylvania called Redner's Grocery Market uh, is one of them, and, and – you can read how, you know, they will put their bylaws online. You can download them and copy them if you want, or you can go into these uh, white, white papers that uh, different corporate law offices put out, that put out to show you how to structure your subchapter S corporation into something that has the availability of employee stock ownership programs and go that route. But I'll tell you what, when we went through a phase after three years of business where we bought two more fermenta- fermentation tanks and we're going to be, we knew we were going to be out in a January, which is a s- slow month, $20,000. And we offered to all, and we reminded all of our employees at that time, Hey, you can swallow your paycheck as much as you want um, to, and it will go towards your investment in the company. And every single person did that really helps us float bigger purchases than a normal business would be able to do. And the access to capital has a very low cost as well. It's, and, and by cost, I mean, hey, we're guaranteeing these people 5% on their stock investment. And hey, they make, make a dividend payment out at the end of the day that maybe doesn't go to me because I only own 76% of the company rather than 100%. But I would much rather have them carry the debt and then take the payout, then have a bank 
uh, forced me at a higher percentage, you know, 5.5% all the way up to 18% right. to finance my capacity growth rather and for them to get um, that that high number back in their in their pockets and not have it go to my staff. Right. I mean, I love the concept of these programs because I think when people own a piece of the action, they're they get the they get a lot of it. You know, they understand from an owner ownership position more than an employee position, and it's definitely a different perspective. But I also know that there's definitely a different perspective from a college age student to someone who this is their career. And so how does that work? You know, you're saying you own 76%, but these people are part of the voting. So how do you handle the voting so they have a voice where they feel that that's, you know, they're getting actually input in there, but that you don't totally have a bunch of college-age students making the full decision of the company? So how does that, how do you divide out the voting, like the power that their vote holds? So... As with any partnership, uh, there's a lot of trust involved, and uh, as it has to be, even when things are written on paper, you still need to have the trust of the people that you're in business with. And that's why the six-month entry into our ESOP program has become one of my favorite parts of it, not necessarily the buy-in number, but the length of time that we know that you've worked with and enjoy working for the company. And the reason being is that when we sit down to vote. Everybody already has their stockholders' rights agreement in front of them. And part of that stockholders' rights agreement that comes out of our bylaws that was produced by our original ESOP investors is that they vote on the direction of this company. They don't vote on operations. Of course, no board of directors would really vote on operations. I am still the operations manager. But they vote on the direction of the company. And when they do that, they are fully aware that any decision I make a 76% owner can override all of them together or separately. So they know that they're going in to vote and that I could just completely throw all of their opinions out the window, but they know and trust also that I'm going to take their feedback into account. And I can't think of a vote that we've taken where I went against um, more than one or two people's wishes in the room. I've always had people on board with where the direction that we were going. And as a, uh, a group of eight people sitting in the room, we have never had a decision where five people chose a dire- five or more people chose a direction. And that wasn't the direction that we went. So kind of a benevolent tyrant, in those, in those right, terms. right. Because uh, I have the I have the power, but I don't need to wield it. Of course. Well, and one of the things too that comes, I think, from getting other people voting in in the room and at the table talking about it is you're getting a variety of perspectives. That sometimes you know we sit in our positions in our roles in companies, and regardless of the the percentage you own, you can get a little bit you know, myoptic and only see from your perspective where things are. And so to have other people at the table saying, well, you know, I'm kind of seeing it this way and this is my impact or I'm dealing with a client or I'm dealing, you know, it's to have all of those different perspectives gives you that 360 that probably helps inform decisions um, is in terms of a general direction, not, you know, the operations. Yeah. Do you guys get it when, when, when this happens, you talk to people that are in, 
a similar business or the exact same business as you and they say, yeah, business is good or uh, no, business is down a little bit, but we'll get back. And the generalities are everywhere and they're in the, in the constructive criticisms aren't, aren't uh, prevalent. Or you talk to your customers and they say, we love your place. We love it. Like we can't wait to come in more, just do more of what you're doing. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're very congratulatory and very uh, supportive. Uh, but that's what you're getting out of these folks. You, you, you can't get, um, and like you said, you could be myopic and think, okay, everything's good. And everybody else has the same problems I do. Right. But when you go and you sit down with people next to you who want to see the business successful, they want to see the business grow, and they know that it's not up to anybody else but them to do it. Now you're now you're talking to some some right, right people. You right. Know? Yeah, and you can have so many different people in a company, like from our regulatory compliance manager to our financial people to a project manager to the chef in the kitchen to, you know, everyone's got their own thing and they're worrying about their piece of the puzzle and their piece is 100% important and it really matters to the whole picture. But if you're only making a decision from one person's perspective, you don't truly end up with necessarily the thing that's best for the company or for the client. And so I re- that's one of the reasons I really like that ESOP model is you get everyone's thought into it, and um, which can happen through a board of directors. It can happen through you know strategic management groups. I mean, there's lots of ways to skin that cat, but it's one of the components of it that I find very attractive. And to your point earlier as well, when we started out and we were a little bit heavier on college students as ESOP investors, yes, I used to have to listen at each of our quarterly board meetings to one of the seniors from Bucknell University pitch his latest idea on how we were going to have an online marketplace and start shipping our bottles via the mail and and, and how we were going to allow kids to order a mug of cider before they walked in the door so that when they were here, their mug of cider would be on top of the bar. And, (laughs) you know, Yes, you you do have to deal with uh, suggestions and, and, and people with not a full view of the business, but only for a brief period of time. Right. And and the help that they're giving to me, I think, and as much as and, and as necessary as that help is, my God, I love looking back and I love talking to now those people that were investors with us when they come back for a reunion or when they come back just to visit our shop sometimes and they say, I can't believe I was an investor in a business and that I sat in board meetings and that, you know, now I'm working in sales or now I'm working for a consulting group and yada, yada, yada. But I, I don't think I'm going to make it back into the boardroom for another 10 years of my life. I don't think I'm going to be part of a business startup um, for another 10 years of my life. So it's a really valuable experience for them to see how directors are making decisions, to see what the whole picture is in a marketplace. And I, I, I love that too. So, you know, the, it isn't just the monetary and it isn't just advisory for us. It's also building a better, building a better employee. Yeah. I feel like, well, and when we were at Dickinson and I was an international business and, and management major, um, is that nothing, there's no experience 
like education's great and it builds a foundation, but having that real experience in the education you're giving these people and the opportunities, I mean, there's nothing like it in the world, especially at that age. Who's going to trust a 21-year-old or 20-year-old to be part of a business? And and like you said, the trust is so important, but then the experience that they take out in the world, whether they stay owners or not, I mean, the value that you're really giving to them and giving them the opportunity to learn, I don't, I mean, I don't think there's anything else like it. I, it really makes me happy to hear. I didn't know anything about this when we, we asked you to be on the podcast, but the thing about it is, is there's so much opportunity out there to give back to people and give back to employees and educate people and help them grow so they can not only better themselves, but better the world around us. And I think it's amazing that you're doing that and, and giving them that educational experience and letting them be part of it for sure. So for people listening, um, the book to purchase uh, that gives you a narrative form and gives you the lifespan of a business that goes for the ESOP program is by Zingerman, or I'm sorry, about Zingerman's Deli. And I believe it's Zingerman that writes it as well. Um, so you can just Google Zingerman's Deli and up will pop the uh, orange cover book about uh, one of the original co-op, also ESOP uh, delis in New York. Or no, I'm sorry, in Chicago, I believe. And, uh, and how they became successful and uh, even... Uh, created a few other locations and um, have had a lot of first followers who then created their own businesses in the same format and are wildly successful as well. So Zingerman's Deli, if you want to Google that, you can find the information and um, begin to learn more if you like. Yeah, I I think I just repeat the name of the book one more time just so the audience can hear that. Zingerman's Deli, Z-I-N-G. Okay, perfect. Um, and so, Rob, just because we've gotten really into the business side, I do want to talk a little bit about your products. I noticed that you are, uh, at least I saw it online and social media, doing some kombuchas and experimenting with those. Um, how is that going and what brought you to that? Well, we, we had experimented uh, back in the beginning with doing all things, uh, all fermentables. Um, another book... Uh, for everybody to take a look at is the art of fermentation by cats k-a-t-z uh the forward in the book is written by michael pollan who we all uh know and love uh for his concentration on the local poor uh, uh world but if you pick up the art of fermentation it's going to be 300 pages of recipes on how to ferment everything from the lettuce in your garden to the apples, to wine, to beer. And we started picking through those recipes. We have a garden in the back of our place and started fermenting as much as we could. And in that process, we of course made some kombucha, which is a black tea-based fermentation that you then sweeten with some organic juices after fermentation is complete. And then you can naturally carbonate it by just adding a little bit more uh, starter sugar, or you can uh, falsely carbonate it by putting it on one of my machines like or putting it in a bright tank and uh, shooting CO2 into it. And so we did that uh, back in the day when we were 
first experimenting with different foods and uh, adding fermentables to complement our ciders. But uh, now we're going to it because we're seeing a lot more college students and young professionals who are not out to binge drink and they're not out to have a cider and then drive somewhere, but they want to come out. They want to come out to the coffee house and they want to come out to the bar and they need some options. And, um, you know, kombucha is more and more prevalent in the grocery stores every day. There are more and more kombucha houses that are producing their own local kombucha every day. And they're popping up at our farmer's markets around Pennsylvania. So we, we gave it another shot and we started fermenting in our brew house. Uh, we created a little separate area to do it because if we ferment too much kombucha alongside our hard cider, they can share uh, some of those microorganisms and we, we can foul up the taste of our cider a little bit. But we created a little spot to uh, ferment more kombucha and um, we usually can keep on uh, one of our taps a kombucha at all times. Right now, I'm, I just walked into the front of the shop and we have a pineapple, mango, and mint tea kombucha on. Uh, we sell it for $4 a pint, uh, which is a pretty good price for around here. Most of our ciders are 5 to $7. And um, we go through about a keg a week, so about 5.1 gallons a week. Yeah, that's amazing. I think kombucha on tap is becoming quite a big thing in the United States. And the other part I wanted to hit on a little bit that you talked about is the trend that we're seeing in college students and and young professionals or young adults in general is they do want to go out every night, but they don't necessarily want to drink or have wine or or um, or beer or whatever it is. And they're a little starting to get a little more health conscious about what they put in their body. And we discussed gluten earlier and um, and things like that. So. I think it's important because I think you're on to something because it is something that we're seeing the generations coming up, less sugar in their diet, less, um, they're more health conscious. They're, they're more aware of what they're putting in their bodies, but they still want to go out and be social without, like you said, the binge drinking, you know, six out of seven nights a week as college students. Um, and so I think that's becoming a big thing. I guess probably males a little more than females did that, but, um, I could still remember Tuesday night Beirut tournaments and, and Dickens in college. But I think it's becoming less and less like that. And people want to go out and socialize and have that same environment without, you know, the necessary pressure of having to have a drink or, or what that's like. And so I love that idea. Um, and I love the pineapple kombucha idea and, and the flavor as well. I know Deborah and I drink quite a bit of kombucha ourselves. Um, and, and make sure it's part of our diet just cause I feel better. Um, and I do have gluten allergies a little bit, um, on, I get a skin reaction. So that's one of the reasons I like it as well is I just feel like it's a good product and it's better than drinking a soda, which I, I drink a little too much of anyway. Um, so it's a good replacement. I feel like for soda and other beverages at a bar and, and whatnot, and obviously the health benefits. So that being said, what other flavors of ciders do you have? And I know you guys do seasonal blends. Tell us a little bit about how you decide the seasons. Uh, do you use different type of apples when you make your kombuchas? And then again, what kind of different flavors do you have? 
Sure. Um, let me let me circle back to what you're saying just really, really quick. Um, Justin, you and I used to know that Long Island iced teas were at the Market Street Cafe on Thursday nights and that gingerbread man had a special until 10 p.m. on on tap beers and that blondies you could get a three dollar pitcher on wednesdays and that was how we geared our drinking throughout the week back in the day and nobody was looking for anything uh better than a miller light pitcher or maybe a blue moon pitcher if they were pushing something special at the bar and nowadays these kids don't even know all the names of the industrial beers anymore. Yep. They know they know their favorite craft beer sometimes, and they know their ciders that they've had, but they don't even know all the different names of these crappy industrial beers anymore because that's not their life. That's not how they're thinking about food and and, and about drinks. So it's been a it's been a real revolution in thinking amongst these younger kids who are just going to have more and more money and buying power in the years to come. And I'm, so I'm really curious to see how that's going to affect the rest of the market. I'm on the vanguard of that because I'm so little and I have to shuck and jive, but also because I have my ear to the ground all the time. This What's hitting me now is going to be hitting people in the future. And I think that um, bars uh, that are in specifically uh, uh, location similar to us where the demographic is a little bit higher net worth. It's a little bit better educated. Um, that kind of a place, which they call the adventure consumer and the experienced consumer, um, uh, is going to demand more from the restaurant that they go to in the future. Right now they're demanding more from the brew house and the cidery, but I think they're going to demand more across the board in the future and we'll see what happens. But that's my prediction. Um, and then going to what you were saying, um, oh, shoot, what were you saying? Uh, I was talking about the, the different types of ciders you have, um, if you just want to let the audience know that. And then I just had a curiosity, do you use different types of apples? Um, since I know the northeast United States in particular, New York and Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, and all the way up, there's so many apple orchards. So do you use different types of apples in those ciders? Sure. We're uh, right on the line between zone five and zone six for fruit growing, which means we can take advantage of having some cold weather apples, which are more typically your bitter sharp apples. And they produce those wonderful, um, full yet complex uh, English ciders uh, that you get uh, from abroad. Um, and then also the eater apples and the dessert apples that you get from zone five, which are bigger and more beautiful, but also have more of a honey sweetness than a acidic, uh, sugary sweetness. Um, so, so we've got the best of both worlds as far as our location and we try to take advantage of it as much as possible. Uh, the bitter sharps for years and years and years have only been useful in making apple juices and nobody purchases them, but used to purchase them for wholesale or for um, uh, 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 eating. But nowadays you can sell any type of apple any way you want because the market is fantastic. Hard cideries have been buying up uh, stuff that previously wasn't able to be sold by the orchards and the orchards are doing fantastic in the area, and we really appreciate that. Our uh, the 
the number, the biggest check we send every month is to a local orchard. And uh, we love having that um, and supporting them. So uh, from them, we can, we can uh, order blends as we see fit. Uh, but the one thing that I've noticed over my years of cider making and with my dad, we did a lot of experimentation as well. And we found that when you're doing single variety apples in uh, a small batch fermentation, that the diversity of sugars and the diversity of starches uh, and uh, pectins that are on the apples is not very great. And sometimes it's difficult for the fermentation to complete itself. Now, you can do an MLF, a malolactic fermentation at the end that smooths out the cider. You can use that, and people use that in wine as well. Um, so, But it does add an extra step to the process that you wouldn't have to use if you just used blends of different types of apples and some more sugars and some more pectins and, uh, and uh, proteins for those, uh, for those microorganisms to eat and process into alcohol. So... We do a minimum of five apples per blend. Almost every single one of those blends will always have a Northern Spy apple, which is a great cross between a bitter sharp apple and an edible apple. They're found in abundance in all the orchards in Pennsylvania, and uh, it's one that makes a great cider or is always part of a great cider. So we always have Northern Spy in there, but you know, we can go anywhere from green apple blends with lots of Granny Smiths and Golden Deliciouses to um, uh, on the uh, on the bitter sharp side and getting more wine saps in there, more dabinets in there, and uh, getting some of these interesting ciders. And then sometimes even turning those those bitter sharp ones into sours and really hitting people's taste buds. I know Deb, you mentioned you like sours. Is that right? Yeah, she does. She just stepped out for one second, but. She she likes uh she likes the honey crisps the best and um for sure but a variety of apples. Awesome. So uh, the ciders that we currently have on tap are our brew cannon our standard. It's a light, dry, crisp cider. It's a hundred percent apple. We don't put any tea in it after the process. There's no secondary, and there's no hopping of that cider. It's just apples in, apples out. And we've had it on since day one, and it will always be on our tap. Sell a bunch of it. We have it labeled so that we can sell it out of the state as well. Um, and we sell it by the keg to local um, breweries. Right now, nobody else has it on. None of the local breweries have it on because we're selling them a seasonal right now. But uh, you can always find it at our place. Uh, next thing on tap is our pair of Brogans. It's a half pear, half apple cider. And we've made this for a couple of years now. Um, the pears we usually put into fermentation well after the season. Uh, they're easier to press when you do that. Uh, but also we have a lot of things at the end of the apple season that we want to get out that are pretty immediate, especially our hopped ciders. And you don't want to hop a pear cider. It makes for a really weird taste. Believe me, I've tried. Um, so we do a pear cider and we put a little bit of vanilla in the secondary with the pear and the apple. And it comes out with a nice, um, smooth taste. And it almost has a little bit of a hint of vanilla ice cream in there. So um, that's our probably our number one seller right now uh, because it's our newest. It's our seasonal that's on, on right now. And uh, a couple of the breweries have that on tap. I know Rusty Rail uh, Brewery down the road has that on tap. 
And then we have our cranberry rosé. This is a cider that we first started making this past uh, May, I believe it was. And we've had it on for a number of months straight. We sell it at uh, the one farmer's market that we go to and uh, sells really well there. It's not uh, typical of our ciders because it has a high residual sugar. We stop the fermentation uh, about three quarters of the way through that we'd normally let everything else go through. And we save some of that sugar uh, for the glass. And so people that are beginners to cider pick up this one because it's more, it has more of a residual sugar content similar to an angry orchard or a woodchuck hard cider. And then our, our next one on the, on the tap is iron horse. This is a cider that took a long time to make. We, um, we knew we wanted to have a coffee cider. We knew we wanted to mix coffee and apple somehow. And after months of trying different recipes and different fermentations and different blends, uh, we, we got a chocolate co coffee caramel blend uh, that has a base and apple. And um, we sell this all winter long. We don't keep it on year round, but we sell it all winter long. And it's a great cold weather drink. It's 9% ABV, and we sell that one at 7 bucks a pint. So it's on the higher side as well. It's a little bit more cost, cost, uh, uh, costly on the uh, ingredient side. And then our specialty ciders are the Colonel. This is an homage to the cider that I made with my father when we first started and to my grandfather when he was making cider in his basement. The kernel is 15.5% ABV, so that's very strong, more than double what most of our ciders are. It's $7 for a 10-ounce glass, and what you're getting is a barrel-aged, smooth cider with strong whiskey notes. Um, it's spent minimum of nine months in that barrel, and that barrel has been aged at a very constant temperature to ensure good quality as it comes out. It's clear with a, a bit of a yellow hue to it, and um, we recommend you put a splash of ginger ale on it if it's your first one, uh, just to make sure you can, you can handle the alcohol and you can handle the strong woodiness. Uh, the next specialty cider is Country Boy Cobbler strawberries, blueberries, and it's light and tart. The unfortunate thing about this one is we put it on the board and we, we list our ingredients after the ABV. The ABV is 12% and the ingredients are strawberries and blueberries. And everybody thinks it's going to taste like a blueberry smushed together with a strawberry. But the reality is when you ferment strawberries, they are tart. And so we have to remind everybody that the Country Boy Cobbler sounds like a blueberry pie and a strawberry pie, but it is really a tart strawberry taste. Um, so we got to get them prepared for that. And then the last specialty cider is our general burn sides. This one's 12% ABV, just like the country boy cobbler, a little bit less than the kernel. We sell it at $8 a glass, which is pretty expensive for us. Um, but it's made of jalapenos and cherry peppers that are part of the secondary fermentation. It comes out very dry, and it comes out with a very significant spice. Um, when we first made this, I drank it because I love spicy things. I love spicy things, and that was part of uh, what I brought back from my years in Spain was uh, enjoying uh, that part of the flavor palette. 
And I thought that maybe I would, me and a few daredevils would be the only people to drink this cider. Uh, and then for some reason, the football coaches at Bucknell started to fall in love with it and it spread like everything at our place does by word of mouth. And now it is a favorite of some of our most devout customers. Um, and that's our lineup right now. I think that's nine of the 10 because we have to switch some out, but, uh, that's our lineup right now inside the shop. If you were to come in at five o'clock tonight, I will be your bartender. I work on Tuesday nights, try to get the shop up and running. We're closed on Mondays. And then, uh, and then the rest of the week, we have our part-time bartenders coming in to take care of the business and serve ciders. Well, and thank you for going through all that. Rob, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And what I'd like to do is that when, as we get off, I'd like to set up another uh, podcast interview time with you to do a part two, because I think like how you source your products and the local consumer and how students and people are going to their local artisans to get their products and the loyalty there and how we're sort of going backwards back to the basics in terms of food and beverage i do really want to get into that so as we get off here um just stay on the line and i really do want to talk to you about that as well but first i just want to say thank thank you you. for thank you for being on the show it was awesome um and i really want to again talk more about this because i think everything in the lessons you're learning and things you're teaching um and what you're doing as a business is hugely important and deserves more than the the hour and 15 minutes we allot for the show and so i will we'll set up a second uh interview as i get off here but for those in the audience if you like what we're doing here please share it with people and please tell your friends that's all we ask we don't do this for any other reason other than giving back and and helping educate people and with that being said, I'm Justin Bizarro. You can reach me at justin.bizarro at gmail.com. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O uh, at gmail.com. And this is Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. And we are going to be getting Rob back on this show very soon. So thank you again, Rob. Thank you, Justin. It was really nice talking with you.